ago, I was, um, I was on Twitter. I don't know if you're a Twitter user. I, I am. Um, and uh, I was on Twitter and across and down my Twitter feed, then uh, there was something that made me smile. There was a tweet, there was a post that was on the Twitter feed. And I think it was actually a repost from someone who, uh, who I follow on Twitter. And, um, and it was funny because I, I won't have this exactly right. But the, the young girl who was, who was actually, who sent the originator of the tweet said this, just sent my crush a playlist to share my feelings. And then it had like these scared emojis, right? <laughs> right, I followed it, right? It was like, I just sent, um, and I smiled because I understand the, the sentiment. I understand the emotion behind just saying, I want to share with you how I feel about you through this compilation of songs. The funny thing about it is, to me at least, like, all, all she had to do was click and drag. Like, that's all she had to do. She clicked on a song, drag it into a playlist, and then share the playlist. And I'm like, kids these days. Because you don't understand what a mixtape is. Like, a mixtape is hard work. Like, it was hard work back in the day where you actually had a cassette tape. And, I, and you know, you had something or someone in mind. You had songs in mind that you were trying to record. I remember having my double cassette player in my room and I had my cassette ready to go and I had play and record pressed at the same time and then I had pause because then you would just sit and you would wait. You would listen to the radio and you would wait until the time and then all of a sudden you start to hear and you scamper scurry across my room and I would put unpause in hopes that the DJ would be quiet so that I could actually get the song instead of the DJ's voice. But in any case, at least if I got the song, and then, and then like the horrible things happen. And all of a sudden you're playing, the, the, you hope you got it, you record back, and then you hear this sort of, and you go, oh no, you, you stop, and you pull the tape out only to find the loop, and you see it all crump, crump, crumpled up, and your heart sinks to your toes, and you go get a number two pencil, and you start to then turn it back, in hopes that it might be saved and restored. This is the work of a mixtape, people. This is, it is not click and drag. This is hard, hard work. And you got to decorate the outside of it because you just think of it, the, the themes of the tape or the person that you're... This is hard work. You know, there are unwritten rules around putting together a mixtape. I, I saw this clip and I just couldn't help but show it with you, show it to you this morning. The making of a good compilation tape is a very subtle art, many do's and don'ts. First of all, you're using someone else's poetry to express how you feel. This is a delicate thing. So for this one, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. When is this gonna stop? When's what gonna stop? Oh, the making. 
of a great compilation tape. Light breaking up is hard to do and takes ages longer than it might seem. You gotta kick it off with a killer to grab attention. Then you gotta take it up a notch. Then you gotta cool it off a notch. There are a lot of rules. Anyway, I've started to make a tape in my head of Laura. Full of stuff she liked. Full of stuff that would make her happy. First time I can sort of see how that's done. I believe when I fall in love with you, it won't be forever. There's a lot of rules around uh, a mixtape, a compilation tape, where you take someone else's poetry and try to express feelings and emotions. When I was in college, I took Greek uh, for two years because apparently I didn't care about my GPA. Um, <laughs> I took Greek for two years, and I had two classmates that I would study with. Particularly, it was a, a guy and a girl, and we would go out um, to a place to study our Greek together. And in, 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 in the middle of nowhere in Indiana, there was the country shed. It was a little diner. It was an all-night diner. And we would go there, and at the country shed where we would study, they had a jukebox. Um, and on the jukebox at the country shed, it, had, it was composed entirely of country music, right? And so I was unaware of any of the songs that were there. But my friend Mike, who was my classmate and study mate, he was from Iowa, and he loved country music. He was not a guy that was able to be very articulate about his feelings and emotions about many things. Um, but he did love country music, and he says, this just describes my life. And so eventually he decided to make a compilation tape for me and, the, and our other classmate who was with us so that we might be able to understand our friend Mike. It was through the, this, the co compilation of um, these, these songs, these country songs, that he was able to find voice. And it's been really interesting for me because we asked you to be able to send your favorite verses, the, the verses that God's word, from God's word that he has used to give voice to your faith, and you sent them in, and many of you did, and there's far more entries um, than we would have time to study. But this, this thing that surprised me, there was something that surprised me, because when all of these, as they were coming in, as you were submitting, we just had one of the ladies in the office just collecting them all, which was, which was great. Um, but then I received the document that w once all the once they'd all come in, I received the document that just had all of these verses that were that were collected. And then I began one morning to just start to read them. And I was surprised and shocked by how moved I was as I read these verses, as I started to hear just these favorite truths that are coming out from the Word of God, and how moved I was, and just moved to worship right there, just in my office, just reading these verses that have been impactful to you and to your life. And I think that after 10 weeks of this, uh, of our studies together, based on the verses that you've submitted, that we will look back and say, this, was a w this is a study that was well worth our time. As we were able to say, this is how God has moved. This is the song, if you like, of how God has been at work in our church family and our faith community. We'll begin the first title, if you like, or the first track on our mixtape this summer is Psalm 139. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to join me there. You can find it on a mobile device of choice. You can just Google Psalm 139. 
Because what I want to do in, in the balance of the time that we have together this morning is I want to begin by looking at a vision of God. I believe God, I believe the psalmist David gives us a vision of God that we need to understand in order, and then think through the way that th that vision of God impacts the way in which we live our life. First, we're going to look at the vi a vision of God, a vision of God. And he does this by just, if you like, we'll take a flyover over uh, Psalm 139, and then we'll unpack it a little bit more. First thing we need to recognize is that what David does is he gives us a vision of uh, three characteristics of God that are, if you like, the omni-characteristics. So that God is omniscient, that God is omnipresent, that God is omnipotent. So first we find in verses 1 through 6 that God is omniscient, which means that God is all-seeing, that God is all-knowing. Let's read together verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So here we have what theologians call the omniscience, or that God is all-knowing. God has revealed himself through the psalmist in his word, that God, you have searched me and you know me. That you know when I'm sitting and you know when I rise, you know my thoughts. You, uh, you know when I'm going out, you know when I'm lying down. You, God, are familiar with all of my ways. There is not a way of life that you are unfamiliar with. Before a word is even on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You know what I'm going to say. You have come before me. You come behind me. You hem me in. God, you are all-knowing. And so the first thing that we recognize or that David wants us to understand about God is that he knows all things that there is nothing in your life that surprises God because he is omniscient. He knows all things. Verses 7 through 12, we see that God is omnipresent, that God is always present. He is everywhere that you cannot hide from him. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. So he says, where can I flee from your spirit? Where is it that God is not present? And the answer is nowhere. There is nowhere that God is not present. God is present everywhere all the time in his creation. Whether, it's the, whether he would go to the highest heavens or the deepest depths, whether he would go on the far side of the sea, or no, everywhere. That, even if you said, well, there has to be some dark closet, there has to be some dark corner, there has to be some place where everybody, where that's complete, utter darkness. No, even the darkness is light to God because he is ever-present. And so this vision that the psalmist is painting, if you like, for the people of God is that God knows all things and that God is always present with his people all the time. And then there's a third thing, that God is all-powerful. And this is on display. This means that God is able, his, he has the power to do anything that he chooses to do. 
And God's power is specifically on display in personal creation. Verse 13 through 16 and following through 18. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. He says, God, you, you created my inmost being. You knew my frame before, before I was ever born. You knew my frame. That you had the power to create. You have the power to make me. These are the characteristics of God. And if you were to study systematic theology, what you'd find is they often will take these characteristics and actually separate them for the purposes of, of study. But in Psalm 139 and in the realities of our lives, the omni-characteristics that all are interwoven with one another. They, they can't be separated from one another. That we need to understand that God knows all things because God is always present and God is always powerful to be able to interact with what he knows and what he sees and where he is. That this is the vision of God. That this is the this is the God as he presents himself in the scriptures, that he is always there, that he is always present, and he's always powerful to do whatever God wills to do in all of creation. This is what God, this is the God that David presents us with in Psalm 139. And this is the vision that we are to take with us into our Monday morning. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar and, and professor, said this, the truth about the omni-characteristics must shape how we think about God himself and his relationship to our world. So in a lecture that he was giving, then he went on to say, to, to illustrate this, by the way in which we think about science, by the way in which science, people think about science, how science is done in our world. And he said, the materialistic atheist thinks science is a discipline that seeks to unpack what goes on in our world by looking purely at the physical, measurable entities. So if you're, a, a, if, if you're a, materialist, a materialist atheist, then the, you have to describe the universe just by observing the material things, things that are measurable. So, in science, for a law or a theory to hold, there must be a representativeness or repetitiveness in the experiments, and so there is the same thing that is done the same way under the same conditions again and again and again, and it always then is to produce the same result. And according to this materialistic view of the universe, this is, this is the way it is, like this, is, this happens the way it is because that's just the way things work, because that's just the way the energy levels work, because that's just the way atoms work, that's just the way the world works. And that is the way that we are to understand the universe around us. There are just certain things. They just work. This, there's certain laws that, that govern those things. And that's just how it is. That's it. That's the materialistic world that is around us. Carson goes on to say, well, there's another way to interact with the world that is around us. When to be thinking about God and his interaction with his creation. And it is the way of the deist 
Well, the deist believes there is a God, but the God of the deist is the God who created and set things in motion and then just let it go on its own. So the God created, if you like, he created like, he sort of created a clock and he created the clock and it was a nice clock and he wound up the clock and he set the clock in motion and then just went to early retirement. And this is, this is the view of the deist. And so science is possible because God made a pretty good clock. And every once in a while, there's a hiccup here and a hiccup there. But by and large, he made a really reliable clock. And so it does the same things, and it just functions the way it ought to function. You can't see God now in this world that he has made because he just made it and then stepped away. So there wouldn't be the hand or the movement of God in this world. So that's an, uh, another way to view. He says there's the uh, materialistic atheist, and then there is the deist. And then he said, thirdly, uh, Carson says there is this group of people who are Christian people. And they have, he says, and this is a very common way for people who actually are, are church-going people, who are Christian people, but maybe not most reflective. He says there's this sort of God of the gap theories. And so it goes sort of like this. They believe in a God who created. They believe in a God who not just, he didn't just go into early retirement, but God who sort of hovers over the creation that he has made. And, the, and God just sort of lets the creation kind of do what it does, the creation that he has made. Until something doesn't go the way it ought, and then the, or a gear pops out, or there's a, p a piece of dirt in the clock, and then so then God has to in intervene. And when God intervenes, we call it a miracle. And they, and they, they say, but, but by and large, it just happens the way it goes, and just kind of goes along, and God just sort of hovers above unless something goes wrong. And so the way that that works out at a street level is that we just kind of go on with life. That we, we go home and you, get, you wake up on a Monday morning and you go out to your car and you push the gas pedal and the car goes forward. And then, and then you push the brake and the car stops and we just kind of go about our day. We just kind of go about our life. We settle down into a regular routine and rhythm where God is largely pushed to the periphery. He's just sort of hovering over our life until, of course, a crisis comes. And then all of a sudden we say, oh, God, no, I, I need you, God. I'm in a mess now. It's a, it's a total, total mess now. Can you please stick your finger back into the mechanism and fix it? And, and D.A. Carson says, now, this is a tremendously popular way of viewing God and his interaction with the world. But it's tremendously unbiblical, as are all three of these. Because what we see as God has revealed himself here in Psalm 139 and as God has revealed himself in the Bible is that the God of the Bible is a God who is in control of all things. That the God of the Bible is a God who knows all things. That God is always present with his people, with his creation. That he is all powerful to do what he wills within the creation that he has made. And this is the God that is on display in Psalm 139. And so you have have Jesus saying that it is God who is the one, and in the Sermon on the Mount, that it is God is the one who actually clothes the field with flowers. And he says this, not because Jesus didn't understand seeds or know how seeds work, that if you plant a seed, then, then out comes a flower. No, it has nothing to do. No, they weren't stupid, right? No, it's because they said, I, they understood this, but they preferred to speak of God as the one who actually, because all of this is all under the purview of God. All of this happens because of the power of God, because God is the one who rules over all things. And so God is the one who ultimately clothes the field with flowers. Or the Old Testament writers 
speak of God ascending the rain? Is that because they didn't understand rain cycles? Of course not. They understood how rain works. But they preferred to think of God as the one who sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. Or so we have here in Psalm 139, where the David writes that you created my inmost being, that you knit me together in my, my mother's womb, that I have been fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together by God Almighty. Is it because David didn't understand how birth worked? Had he never seen a, an animal be born? Had he never seen one of his own children be born? Of course he had. Of course he saw those things. But he attributed all of these things, but rather said, yes, but God, the one who is ever-present, the one who is all-knowing, the one who is all-powerful, he is the one who gives birth. He is the one who knit me together. I'm not just the result of my DNA. I'm not just a mass of my chromosomes, but it is God, the one who knows all things. And he is the one who has ultimately knit me together for who I am, that I am the way that I am. And in this view, the reason that science is possible is because this God who controls all things acts normally in regular ways. And when he does what he does in regular ways, then, you're able to, then scientists are able to study the regular ways and science is able to discover, discover the patterns of God and frame it in so-called laws of nature. And when God does things in irregular ways, it's called a miracle. It's not like he doesn't do some things and does do all other things. No, God is overseeing and orchestrating. He's doing all things. And sometimes he interacts in an extraordinary manner. And when he does, then we would do well to sit up and listen and take note. And this is the vision of God that we see here in Psalm 139. And this is the vision of God that we are to take with us. That he is a God who is ever-present. That he is a God who is always powerful and he is a God who knows all things and that he's working all of these things for the good of those who love him. And this is what we take with us. This is we, we live our lives with a view of God in this way. We must not allow God to be pushed up to the periphery of our lives. This is the vision. Well, if this is a vision of God that is laid out for us here, then how ought this impact our lives? How ought this to have an impact on our living? Well, first, it ought to impact my inmost being, Psalm th or, uh, verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Our inmost being is the, the bit of us, the the part of us that makes it's the innermost part of who we are it is the quiet still place it is that place that makes you you and only you it is the place in all of us that are the deep recesses of who we are some of you this morning come into this room and you are avid journalers and I have to tell you that I'm jealous of your ability because I am not I can't tell you this stack of journals that have like two pages and that have actually have something written on it and then I end up throwing it off to the, to the, on, on the shelf and putting it in a box somewhere but for some of you you have the unique ability to be able to take and put the word to page that actually begins to describe the, the things that are going on in the very deepest parts of your being and I, I'm jealous of that opportunity. I'm jealous of, of that skill set that you have. Because the deep place is the place that makes you who you are. 
And according to this psalm, the psalmist says, and it is God who made you, who made that place, that God knows you, that God pursues you in the place of your thoughts and of your feelings and of your emotions. God pursues you in that place where no one else knows, where no one else can see, but God can because he is all-knowing, because he's ever-present, and because he's all-powerful. And so he meets you in the deepest inner places of your life. There's a blogger and author named Mary Grimm, and she's reflecting on this truth from Psalm 139, and she says this, I think that's what our inmost being is, our thoughts and feelings, the very things which cannot be seen from the outside, the hidden parts of our personalities and beliefs, the things that only those closest to us can see, and not all those people can see the inmost being either. Psalm 139 verse 13 tells us that God formed those parts of all that we are. So God created my inmost thoughts and feelings, the thoughts and feelings that are farthest from the outside, from the surface. Oftentimes, these inmost parts of me can only be revealed by me, should I choose to reveal them to someone. They are not seen by others unless I want them to be seen. There are a few people in my life that can look at me and see that there's something wrong with my inmost being. Those people are very few. They know what signs to look for in my behaviors, but they've had to learn that over time. And because I have let them into my inmost thoughts and feelings, even, those, even these people usually do not know specifically what unrest, uh, what the unrest is in my, in my inmost being. They just know that there's something going on and are privy to that inf not privy to that information unless I choose to tell them. However, where other people cannot see and know my inmost being, there is one who can. The one who created that part of me. God created the in my inmost thoughts and feelings and beliefs and dispositions. So he understands and he sees and he knows what signs there are that mean my inmost being is in a state of unrest because he created me this way. God is the one who knows. God is the one who sees into the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart. Because why? Because he made you. Because he formed you. Because he loves you. All of us deal with the brokenness of sin. All of us deal with the brokenness of this world. And every single bit of us is affected by this, even the deepest, innermost parts of our soul. And we say, how is it that healing can come? How is it? Because God sees. Because God knows. And the Spirit of God ministers in the deep recesses of the hearts of those who are his children. Can I tell you what a great comfort this is as a pastor? Because I don't know what's going on in your hearts. I can't see into the deep places. I don't have words that can actually comfort. But knowing that God does. So those of you who have loved ones who are in the throes of Alzheimer's or dementia, and they're great saints of the faith who love Jesus, and yet their mind seems to be slipping away on them, 
to know that I don't have words to be able to communicate with him. They don't have words to be able to communicate back to me. They don't even recognize my face any longer. But the very spirit of God who drew them, the very spirit of God who knows all things, is present with his children and is powerful to do whatever God wills to do, can meet and meet them in the very deepest recesses of their heart until God calls them to be with him. Do you understand what a great comfort that is and what a great comfort it ought to be to you? Do you understand what a great comfort it is when we see the debilitating brokenness of our world through disease, through cancer, through, through all of these different physical things that rob us of our ability to communicate, and yet we have confidence in the God who always sees, the God who always knows, the God who is all-powerful, to go meet in the deep recesses of those who are his children and to remind them of the promises of the truth of Almighty God, that God knows them, that he cares for them, that he loves them, because God made them, and he is still at work in this world. The significance of this or those who, who find themselves in the throes of battling anxiety or depression and where we feel like we've wandered into the deepest, darkest places and at 2.30 in the morning you stare up at your, at your ceiling of your bedroom saying, why can't I be asleep? Why can't I? What is going on? God, is the, has the night become dark to you? The answer is no. That God in those moments by his spirit can minister to the deeper innermost parts of those who are his children because he sees, because he knows because he loves. And this is the God of Psalm 139. And this is the God of the Bible. Not only does it impact our living in our inmost being, but it impacts our living in our physical being. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. God created your body. Before your body came to be, God created your body. God gave you a body. God gave you the body you have. Some of you say, well, I've got a, I've got a bone to pick with God because he gave me the body I have. I understand. This may seem like an insignificant thing, but I think it's huge, hugely vital for Christian living. Because why? Because we live in a society, an over-sexualized, over-sensualized, over-objectified use of the body that swims in the, that's just the culture in which we live this is the air in which we breathe where we choose to objectify the very bodies the very creation that God has given us and as a result of this and we do it in a whole variety of ways but as a result of this lack of understanding of our body and lack of thinking it out from a theological perspective then it has detrimental effects on our society Dr. Alexis Kinesin, in, in an article in, Psycho in Psychology Today, wrote this. We are in the midst of an epidemic of disordered eating. We are taught that our self-worth is measured by the numbers on the bathroom scale. Our culture perpetuates the myth that if a woman does not manipulate her body to conform to the social ideals, then she is worthless and deserves to be mistreated, disrespected, and humiliated. Unfortunately, the ideal that our society has set out as a standard for women to achieve is impossible for 99.9% .9 of us. The models featured in the fashion magazines can't even achieve the very ideal that they represent. 
Some fashion insiders estimate that 100% of the images in the magazines are digitally altered, usually making the women appear thinner. Some companies have even been accused of using computer-generated bodies in their advertising. These unrealistic ideals have led to a pervasive sense of body dissatisfaction for men and women across the weight and age spectrum. 42% of first through third grade girls want to be thinner. 81% of 10-year-olds are afraid of being fat. 50 to 70% of adolescent girls and 25% of adolescent boys report feeling unhappy with their body. And things only get worse as we age. 88% of women over 50 report body dissatisfaction. Approximately 10 million women and 1 million men are currently struggling with an, with an eating disorder. And a recent, study, a recent study revealed that young children are increasingly vulnerable to the pursuit of thinness. From 1999 to 2006, hospitalization for eating disorders in children under 12 years old increased 119%. Eating disorder treatment centers have developed programs for children as young as eight years old. And this is the world in which we live. Because of a failure to understand our body, then we find ourselves with eating disorders. We find ourselves with people being able to say, that I, have, I have problems. I have issues with being able to even live healthy lives. So how are we to think about our bodies? Psalm 139 says, God knew your frame before you were born. God saw your body before you were born, before you were known. We need to recognize that your body matters to God, that God gave you a body and that your body is the temple of the very spirit of God that indwells you and that God is glorified in honor when you honor him with your body. Look, Jesus took on a body. God came in, uh, incarnate, took on the form of human flesh. That's significant. And then when he died and he rose again, he still had a body. He didn't somehow become disembodied. No, he got a resurrected body. And then what? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He still has a body. When Jesus returns, he will return in bodily form. He will have a body. And you and I will receive our resurrected bodies, and we will have a body for all of eternity. Now, hopefully, mine will be thinner, and, and it won't give me so much pain. But you never know. What I do know is that our body matters to God. Your body matters to him, and your body is a gift from him, and your body is therefore not to be exploited. Your body is not to be exploited by you or by someone else because your body matters to God. And you say, look, I understand you say, well, I don't really care for my body because I got this mole, and the mole's just, mm, why, could, why do you have to give me the mole? I don't, I don't like the mole. I don't know. Take that up with him. But here's what I do know, that mole or no mole, that your body is a gift that God gave to you to be able to glorify and honor him with the way in which you tend to and care for and steward your body. That it's not yours just to do with, just to do with it whatever you like, but it is a gift to you to steward until you get a new one. You have been given a body, and so has all the other people that are in the image of God that bear our image bearers of God, and so therefore 
we don't objectify their or abuse their bodies either. When you live your life in full view of the omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotent God who gave you your body so that he can be with you. So finally is this. Not only does God see us in our inner being and on our physical being, but also in our time being. He says, all the days were ordained for me. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, I understand that for some, this is a troubling passage. For some, this may not be an encouragement on a 4th of July weekend, but not for me. I find great comfort and security in knowing that God has my life so ordered that I will not die one day, one moment sooner than God has ordained or planned, that I will not live one day longer than God has already recorded in his book. And so, because, you know, I, I think the issues of life or dead are death, the issues of life or, or death are, are just above my pay grade. I'm happy to leave those at the throne room of Almighty God, of deciding. And so, therefore, what is the result? So, therefore, I can live with great freedom. Therefore, I can go about my day knowing that the one who loves me, that the one who has made me, the one who has planned my life, that I can walk intimately with him because he is the one that I am never out of his sight. I am never out of his guidelines. I'm never out of the bounds of my heavenly father, that the one who knows all things, he is the one who knows all things. I am not. He is the one who is present everywhere. I am not. He is the one who is all-powerful. I am not. And he is the one, therefore, that I can rest giving all of the days of my life to him. And so I can say with David in another psalm that my times are in his hands, that I can leave all of the moments of all of my days into this God who loves me, who knows the intimate places of my very soul, who has given me this body for the time that he has given me this body until he comes and my faith becomes sight and I go to be with him until those times. And so we are those who if we have the vision of God of God who is all-knowing, who is all-present, ever-present, and is all-powerful to do what he wills. And we can go into our July 4th celebration and say, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. Let us pray. Father, we want to be those who have a proper vision of you, we want to be those who live in light of those promises and those truths and those realities. And we want to be those who praise you and recognize that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We come grateful that all of your promises find their yes and amen in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.